Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Xander's Facts. Hello everyone, welcome into Xander's Facts. I am of course the aforementioned Xander, and no, this is not a new episode of the Xander's Facts podcast. This is a Xander's Facts flashback this week because this podcast is coming out on Wednesday, November 9th, the day after Election Day. And if you wonder why I'm trying to keep my voice very low, it's because I'm recording this past 1 a.m. in the morning on Wednesday, November 9th, because you all know how much of a political junkie I am. That was dumb. I'm looking to my left right now at the the TV. Of course, I've got CNN. I've got NBC. I've got all the channels on. I've got all the stuff on my computer up. I am following the results all night long. I'm going to go to sleep eventually. But for now, we got to keep track of the races. And I don't want to talk a lot about them right now because obviously early, very early Wednesday morning, we don't know who's going to control the House. We don't know who's going to control the Senate. There's a lot up in the air. And obviously next week, we're going to have our podcast episode 82. We're going to have a recap of the midterm elections at the beginning of the podcast to make sure to not miss that. But we do know the results in a bunch of key elections, not all of them, but as of very early Wednesday morning, and this will probably change by the time you listen to this podcast, but we do know some of the key results right now, starting in the Senate, Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, the Democrat, wins Pennsylvania. That's a pickup for Democrats, one they desperately needed for basically an insurance policy for states like Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, which, spoiler alert, When this podcast is coming out, I don't know the results of Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. Those states are still being counted, and they may still be counted. When you're listening to this podcast, it may be hours, days, weeks, we don't know. Tell me, tell me! But what we do know is Dr. Oz did not win in Pennsylvania. Wisconsin is also very close right now. When I'm recording this podcast, the Xander's Facts flashback, 92% in, and Ron Johnson, the incumbent Republican, is up. 51 to 49%. That is extremely close. That's one Republicans have to hold if they want to win the Senate because that's a Republican seat right now. Democrats could get a pickup if they won that one. And obviously there's Georgia. Right now, Warnock and Walker are very close. Warnock is at 49.4%. Walker's at 48.6%. And Georgia's that state where if you don't get 50%, If neither candidate gets 50%, you go to the runoff, which is December 6th. So if Warnock, Warnock is probably most likely to get 50% right now. If he doesn't get to 50% by the time all the votes are counted, then those two candidates alone go to a runoff on December 6th, I believe is the date. You've got Arizona and Nevada, which we don't know. I don't know about right now because not a lot of votes have come in there. So that's really the Senate. And then governor's races, Pennsylvania, obviously. Shapiro, the Democrat, beat Mastriano. 91% in right now, 12 points. New York, Republicans thought, oh my gosh, we could win this one. They, spoiler, did not. Michigan, the Democrat, Gretchen Whitmer, is projected to win. In Wisconsin, this is pretty big for Democrats in Wisconsin. Tony Evers, the incumbent Democrat, projected to win 51% of the vote with 89% in. And then you've got Kansas right now. I'm looking at it right now. 87% in. Remember, Kansas has a Democratic governor, Laura Kelly. She's the incumbent. She's got 49.5% right now. The Republican Derek Schmidt has 47.5%. So that is obviously close. In Georgia, Brian Kemp beats Stacey Abrams by about eight points. In Florida... Ronnie DeSantis Claus. Florida, Republicans did really well in Florida. Ron DeSantis is going to win by about 20 points. Rubio in Florida is going to win by double digits. Republicans did really well in Florida, but looking at the map, not really anywhere else that they wanted to. Arizona right now, too close to call. Nevada, that Oregon race right now that we were talking about. This is interesting because Oregon's a blue state. Well, I'm looking at it right now. Oregon, 66% in. The Democrat, Tina Kotick, up 
less than 1% over the Republican. So that one is going to be close, and the voting might last for a while. So basically, very early Wednesday morning, we've been able to gain some results and declare some winners, but we don't know the full extent. But what we do know is that the Republicans who were hoping that this was going to be a red tsunami, a red wave, that did not happen. In the Senate, they would have won Pennsylvania. They tried to win New Hampshire. Maggie Hassan, the Democrat incumbent, is going to win in New Hampshire in the Senate. They're not going to pick that up. In a bunch of House races, I told you about Virginia's 2nd District. Elaine Luria, who's on the January 6th committee, is the incumbent Democrat. She lost in that district. I said that could be a bit of a bellwether, and it might be. Republicans won that district, but the Democrats, like the Republicans, are also flipping seats, like Ohio's 1st District, North Carolina's 13th District. There's a couple districts that Democrats are flipping. Republicans are also flipping districts. So the thing is, just about, it was around midnight, I believe, Wednesday morning, Tuesday night, NBC News came out with their latest projection from the decision desk on the House, how many seats Republicans, Democrats were going to control. They projected that Republicans would get 219 seats. You need 218 seats for control and 216 seats for the Democrats, plus or minus 18 seats, which basically means that right now, control for the House is much more likely for the Democrats than many people thought heading into Tuesday night, which I said I brought up two ways this election can go, basically. The polls and the forecast could be right. Those were predicting Republican wins, major, or the theory, mainly among Democrats, that early voting numbers that help Democrats will help them, and that the polls are basically being infested by these right-wing garbage polls. Well, it turns out we're heading more towards that Democratic theory ending up being correct. Now, there's other states, namely in the Senate, Ohio, North Carolina, where the polls for Republicans held up. Republicans are projected to win the Ohio and North Carolina Senate races, but in other states, and especially in a bunch of House districts, that's not holding up. So what you're looking at right now is a really close election where, as of Wednesday morning, maybe when you're listening to this podcast, when it comes out Wednesday morning, control of the Senate and the House is basically up for grabs. So there you go. That's my little 1 a.m. little rant, Sanders facts, flashbacks. So that's basically how the midterms look right now. But next week, hopefully we know the results of everything going on next week because we'll be back with episode 82 of the podcast and we will provide basically a recap of the midterm elections to break down basically everything. And also, next week is our World Cup preview podcast, so you're not going to want to miss that. But before we get to this week's Xander's Facts flashback, I did just want to remind you all that if you like the Xander's Facts podcast, if you think you're going to like the facts on this week's Xander's Facts flashback, Remember to follow the podcast, download this episode, the Sanders Facts Flashback, rate and review the podcast, then go on all your socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. On TikTok, I posted a voting guide on election day, so you might want to be following Sanders Facts on TikTok. Go on all those. The Sanders Facts is on there. That's Sanders with a Z. And most importantly, go tell all your friends. Spread the facts. Xander's Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast, about Xander's Weekend Facts, the weekly newsletter that comes out every Sunday morning. Xander's Facts is on YouTube, xandersfacts.com, and the new Xander's Facts shop. We've got so many facts everywhere. Check them out and then tell your friends. But let's get to this week's Xander's Facts flashback. We are going back to episode 71, which was back in July. We talked about wealth inequality. It's become a serious problem. In the United States, you know, Elon Musk, the richest man on in the world, basically, who bought Twitter and now everything that's going on with Twitter. I think we mentioned him on this podcast, so you might want to go take a listen to the Sanders Facts flashback. And to do that, just keep listening, because here we go. We are talking wealth inequality on the Sanders Facts flashback. <music> 
Xander's Facts. I've got a big topic, one topic, that I think I gotta spread some facts in. So, I got a bunch of facts about wealth inequality. I promised we were going to talk about that a couple weeks ago, and I'm fulfilling my promise this week on episode 71 because we are talking about wealth inequality, the wealth gap, whatever you want to call it. That's what we're talking about this week on the podcast because it hasn't been a hot topic in the news recently, but it's important to know about because it is affecting all of us, no matter where you are on the income or wealth scale. It is affecting everyone. So this week on the podcast, we're going to be taking a look at the wealth gap, wealth inequality, a societal characteristic that I think needs to be addressed. If you say so. So let's take a look at it because I did say it wasn't a hot topic in the news, but actually, if you really think about it, it kind of has been because a hot topic in the news recently has been a man, you might know him, Elon Musk. Yeah, I know. Ugh. Elon Musk. We're going to talk about that for a second. Because back in the spring, Musk announced that he would buy the social media giant Twitter, everyone loves Twitter, for about $44 million. But, you all know the but, over the next few months, Musk expressed significant doubt over the deal. He was like, eh, maybe I won't do this, claiming that Twitter was not complying with his request for access to numbers of bots on the platform. And let me just say, as someone who was on Twitter every day, and I bet a lot of you are on Twitter all the time, y'all know there's a bunch of bots on Twitter. Twitter apparently was not telling him the full extent, or as he claims, I mean, he probably just wanted to get out of the deal. But anyway, a few weeks ago, Musk announced that he was terminating the deal and instead was wanting to pay a $1 billion buyout fee, which we all saw from the beginning because we were like, he's not really going to do this. Like, come on. And he didn't do it. So he's wanting to pay a $1 billion buyout fee. But now Twitter doesn't want that because the company appears to be in turmoil because Musk did all his crazy things and is now suing Musk over the deal, which they are, or I'll just say, They've got a good case against Musk. So, I mean, we'll see what happens there. But why does a single individual, Elon Musk is not a corporation, even though he's the CEO of a couple, he is a single individual. Why does he get to cause this much chaos and turmoil in just one social media company that has, let's just say, Twitter has become a significant voice for hundreds of millions of people around the world? Well, it might be due to the fact that Elon Musk's net worth adds up to be $230 billion. Get that dough! Which makes him the richest man alive. $230 billion. Now, I'm going to guess, wild guess, that you probably don't have $230 billion, unless you're Elon Musk and you're listening to this podcast, in which case, hello, Elon. But also, unless you're Elon Musk, you probably weren't planning on making $230 billion over your lifetime. Like, I probably guess you'd probably wind up a little over $229 billion short. Wild guess. But that brings up the question, why in the world is Elon Musk worth over $230 billion and the rest of us would probably consider it a success to become a millionaire in our lifetimes? It all has to do with wealth inequality, which is why I just went on that little tangent. So let's get into what exactly wealth inequality is, because I keep saying it, and you're like, Xandra, I don't know what that is. Quit your whining. I will tell you, because wealth inequality is just one of many different terms that can be used to describe this basic phenomenon, such as we could use economic inequality, disparities of wealth, the wealth gap. We could use those, but I'm going to stick with wealth inequality because that's kind of simple. I'll simplify things here. But wealth inequality can be simply defined as the unequal distribution of assets in a group of people. Assets being wealth, which can be accumulated by any financial means such as stocks, property, or from generational wealth, which is the inheritance that you receive from your family over time, from generations of your family. Wealth inequality, though, and another term Income inequality may sound similar, but they actually do mean slightly 
different things. Because in contrast to wealth inequality, income inequality is the unequal distribution of income in a group of people. Income is different from wealth because wealth is the amount of goods that have accumulated over time. For example, I'll just throw out a number. If my net worth was $50 million, that was because I would have accumulated enough assets, stocks, property, etc., over the years to become worth $50 million. Now, whatever I add to that over time is income, like a yearly salary is your income. Good to know. So those are very similar, and they go together well in this conversation. I'm going to be talking about both of them, and they follow the same trends. But for now, just the next few minutes, I'm going to stick with wealth inequality. So an unequal distribution of assets in a group of people. I would say that can pretty accurately define our society right now because take a look at this statistic from the Institute for Policy Studies and Americans for Tax Fairness. Three individuals, you may know their names, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. They were worth, in 2019, a combined $301 billion. In 2016, which is only three years, not big difference, The bottom 50% of Americans, so the poorest half of Americans, were worth a combined $255 billion. So that's a little snapshot at what we're playing with here. The top, the extremely top, the top 1%, the top 0.1%, one-tenth of 1% are extremely rich. And they've got a lot of money, similar to vast swaths of the bottom of America. So I'm talking about 1%, top one-tenth of 1%. So now you're probably starting to get this image of Bernie Sanders in your head yelling about the top 1%. Top 1%. And he's wagging his finger at you. Pretend I'm wagging my finger at you. During his two presidential runs, and many times outside those windows, very recently, Sanders has claimed that the top 1% own more than twice as much wealth as the rest of humanity combined. That's what he said in one of his tweets. And at the 2016 Democratic National Convention, he claimed, quote, the top one-tenth of one percent now owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent, unquote. A claim PolitiFact rated mostly true with a 2014 study from the National Bureau of Economic Research stating that the top 0.1 percent, about 160,000 U.S. families, had an average wealth of $72.8 million, which is about 22% of the country's wealth. The bottom 90%, or 144 million families, had an average wealth of about $84,000, which added up to be 22.8% of the country's wealth. So there you go. It's all true! But PolitiFact claimed that Sanders' claim might need extra context because the study has been criticized for not potentially factoring in the different ways that income is reported. But despite the criticism, and it's likely that an adjustment for different tax levels and whatnot wouldn't probably make any significant difference in the results anyway, there are, besides the point, other studies that reports similarly disturbing findings. Like in 2016, the National Bureau of Economic Research found that the bottom 90% of Americans and 21.2% of American wealth. Well, that's nice. Until you find out that the top 5% own 66.7% of American wealth. And in 2021, the Federal Reserve found that the bottom 90% of Americans own an 11.4% share of the total stocks and mutual funds in the country, which I mean, great. Until you realize that the next 9% own 35.2% and the top 1% own 53.5% of all the stocks and mutual funds in the United States. So, Everyone claims that it's great when the stock market's rising. You know, Donnie Boy loved it when the stock market was rising. Everyone's like, yay, make it, buddy. And it is a huge benefit if you own stocks. And while there are people at the bottom, the bottom 90%, that's most people who do own stocks, that predominantly helps if the stock market's going up, the top earners, the top one, five, 10%. And by the way, 
unless your net worth is over $1.143 million, $1,143,000, you're in the bottom 90%. And unless your net worth is greater than $10.257 million, you're in the bottom 99%. Just to put those numbers into actual context. That's impressive. So, if you haven't already known, it's probably becoming clear by now that the few at the top are making a lot, and I mean a lot more than the average American. And don't get me wrong, that's okay. Because if that wasn't happening, then everyone would be making the exact same, and that would be equality. But they'd have the exact same assets, and that's what we like to call communism. Everybody shouts, oh my gosh, it's communism! Which usually, they shout communism, it's usually not communism. But, I mean, that basically is. No one is advocating for that. At least I hope not. Some people might be. But don't listen to them, because they're communists and crazy. What are you talking about? But the trend that we have been seeing recently is alarming. It's fine that people can have different amounts of wealth, like that's always been the case in this country, but the disparities at which this is occurring in our modern time have become concerning. But before we get to why exactly it is concerning, because it is, and what we can do about it, because we can do stuff about it, let's dig a little into history and figure out how wealth disparities have appeared in the past. Ooh. I love a good history dig, and that is what I did to prepare for this podcast, and now we're all going to go on a history dig here on Xander's Facts Podcast, episode 71. So, how did we achieve this level of wealth inequality in the year 2022 in the United States of America? Well, you might actually be surprised to know that this is not the first time that we have been concerned about the growing divides of wealth in the United States, because wealth inequality and disparities have existed for as long as the U.S. has been a country, and even before then, you know? But we've only faced one comparable situation like this in our history, where it has gotten so out of control that we're like, something gotta happen right now. That was back in the early 1900s, and it actually not right now. It kind of happened over decades. But the concentration of wealth began moving to the top in a similar fashion to now. In 1915, it was found that 15% of the income in the U.S. went to the richest 1%, and that in 1918, that number jumped to 18%. Now, around this time, the top 1% also owned 51% of the property in the U.S., and that wasn't good. And that was figured out by former President Theodore Roosevelt before then. <laughs> During his tenure as president from 1901 to 1909, he led the charge on 44 antitrust lawsuits against some of the country's largest businesses, which resulted in the largest railroad monopoly breaking up, safer working standards, and the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, being created under his watch to ensure that healthy products were being sent to consumers because you don't want to eat bad food. Yum. The early 1900s are known as the first Gilded Age, because that was basically a time when those at the top had a disproportionately large amount of wealth, and it was negatively affecting the lives of middle, everyday Americans. So, Roosevelt's actions in the first decade of the 20th century, the 1900s, were basically the first actions that were taken. It was just a start to bringing some of that wealth back down to the lower and middle classes, because in 1916, Congress enacted the first of two wealth taxes. The estate tax was instituted to tax the wealth that someone accumulated throughout their lifetime and was paid by the heirs who inherited that wealth. Then in 1922, we get the capital gains tax, which taxed the increased value of assets and was paid when those assets are sold. Well, it still is paid when those assets are sold. But now, we still have those taxes today, but their effects have significantly diminished. And that's because with the estate tax, the amount that you can exempt from that tax has gone up significantly. Like, let's just go up to 2001, because in 2001, you could exclude up to $675,000 from your estate taxes. And that number in 2017 was up to $5.49 million. The next year in 2018, 
it ballooned to $11.18 million. Why did it go up so high? Because if you remember in 2017, Donnie Boy, the Republicans, passed their tax cuts. So all that basically does is let the wealthiest accumulate more money. The bottom 90% of Americans would probably love to even have close to $5 million worth of assets. But of course, for the top 1%, they might not even be paying that tax at all because, you might remember this, the former director of Trump's White House National Economic Council, Gary Cohn, once said, quote, only morons pay the estate tax, unquote. Are you stupid? So, tax loopholes have definitely become common for those at the top to pay little in taxes each year, and they can get away with it because of the severe underfunding of the IRS, which doesn't have the resources to stop these practices, which, oh, a potential solution. But I'll get to solutions in a minute. But we're still doing our little history dive. And I did the estate tax, but with the capital gains tax, why that has diminished, that's because that tax isn't paid until those assets are sold off. Meaning I could have, let's just say a hypothetical. Huh. I could have 100 shares of Walmart that I bought at $50 a share. But now it's up to $200 per share. But I'm not paying the tax on the income that I've made from $50 per share to $200 per share because I haven't sold those socks. Also, there's a lot of people that are exploiting a loophole that lets you hold on to your assets until you die, then your heirs inherit them, and they don't have to pay capital gains on them because the increased value is erased for tax purposes when it's transferred. Hmm. That is estimated to cost the U.S. $40 billion per year in tax revenue, and it results in the continuance of wealth inequality from generation to generation because it just keeps building. So ultimately, those taxes did help in the short term, and I'm going to give you statistics to back that up in a second, but long term they haven't because we've allowed them not to work. We have allowed those at the top to basically exploit them. Now, in that time period, moving a little forward, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, Great Depression, there's also the New Deal, which was, of course, pushed by the other Roosevelt who became president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. His New Deal, which came into effect during the Great Depression in the early 1930s, allowed for a rise in union membership, better workers' rights, and a steady increase in median compensation and in labor productivity from that time period until the early 1970s. And the New Deal also significantly raised marginal tax rates, which is the tax rate paid on your last dollar of taxable income. So in 1944, for those making over $200,000 per year, which is about $3.4 million today, their marginal tax rate was 94%. That's the highest that's ever been. It was 94% in 1994. That number dropped to 70% in 1965, and in 1982, it dropped to 50%. Today, the top marginal tax rate for individuals making over $518,400, which is above that, the highest tax bracket, 37%. So Roosevelt's actions with his New Deal at the height of the Great Depression to stop the Great Depression led to income inequality decreasing and an economic boom in the U.S., of course, we know that after World War II. And World War II, production increasing significantly during World War II, was also a cause for that. So from 1930 to 1941, the top 1% took 15% of the total income in the U.S. That number dropped to 10% between 1942 and 1952. And then after 1952, until the 1980s, that stabilized between 8 and 9%. So the 1970s, which is basically when all this ended, that was when the post-World War II economic boom ended in the U.S. And the 1980s changed things drastically, beginning with the boy, uh-oh, Ronnie Reagan. We've talked about him on this podcast. I had a whole thing about him and conservatism on this podcast, which you should go listen to 
Because if you think this podcast has facts, that podcast had a lot of facts. I don't remember when it was, but go listen to that too. But under Ronald Reagan, who was president from 1981 to 1989, income and wealth inequality began to increase for the first time in nearly 50 years. According to Washington Monthly, since 1981, which was Reagan's first year as president, three famous American families, the Kochs, the Mars, and the Waltons, you know the Kochs, the Koch brothers, Mars, Chocolate, and Waltons are Walmart, those families' wealth has risen nearly by 6,000% in that time frame, while the median U.S. household wealth has actually declined by 3%. Whoops. Under Reagan, the top marginal tax rate fell from 73% in 1981 to 28%. Of course, Reagan implemented his big tax cuts in 1981, which he did because people wanted tax cuts because that was during a bad economic time and the tight monetary policy that they had around that time caused the big recession and inflation was like 13, 14%. It was not a good time in the early 1980s. So they implemented all these tax cuts, which turned out to be a bad move. And then Reagan had to subsequently increase taxes 12 times during the rest of his presidency, which only made up about half of the tax cuts that happened in 1981. But the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981 slashed revenues by 2.9% of GDP, but it was also popular at the time. So ever since, Republicans, of course, Reaganomics, have run on tax cuts, which haven't really affected the lower middle classes, but have been a huge boon to the upper class. This is what we call trickle-down economics, because when you give tax cuts to the wealthy, the savings are meant to be shared with the lower and middle classes. So they think giving all the rich people money, more money, they think that the rich people are going to give all that money, all that savings down to the consumer, which hasn't turned out to be the case because in 1985, the richest American was Walmart founder Sam Walton. He was worth $6.7 billion. The richest American now is Elon Musk. He's worth over $200 billion. And in today's money, $6.7 billion in 1985 is $18.5 billion today. So, you know, they've just kind of gotten richer. In 1981, though, the top 0.1%, so the top 10th of 1%, had accumulated 2.6% of the nation's wealth, and they were paying 2% of the total taxes. In 2018, that top one-tenth of 1% share of wealth jumped to 9.6%, but their share of taxes paid has only increased to 4.9%. That's according to the Institute for Policy Studies. It has also affected average wealth, because according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, the bottom 40% of Americans had an average household wealth of $6,400 back in 1983. In 2016, that number actually dropped to negative $8,900 because, you know, debt is considered in there as well. In the same time frame, the top 1% jumped from $10.6 million to $26.4 million, and the top one-tenth of 1%, 0.1%, increased from $43.3 million to $100.8 million. From that same source, the National Bureau of Economic Research, the bottom 90% of Americans owned 31.8% of the country's wealth in 1983, and they now only own 21.2% of U.S. wealth in 2016. In that same time frame, the top 5% went from 56.1% to 66.7%. That's a lot of numbers. So, from the 1930s and 40s to the 1970s and 80s, we have pretty steady income and wealth inequality that dropped drastically from before the Great Depression. Then, after the 1980s, we see a spike in income and wealth inequality in the U.S. once again. Then, we have 2017. The Trump administration and the Republicans in Congress passed further 
tax cuts, which have, as you would expect, so far been found to have been mixed results for the middle class while largely benefiting the upper class. Unless, of course, you look at the analysis that was done by the Heritage Foundation. Oh boy, let's take a look at this. The Heritage Foundation found that the tax cuts were a major success because the government is bringing in more tax revenue this year than in 2017. How about that? That's true. But comparing 2017 to 2022, after a pandemic in which money was pumped into the economy, I would say that's probably not the greatest comparison. And by the way, I thought that Republicans, because the Heritage Foundation is a conservative think tank, I thought Republicans wanted smaller government. But bringing in taxes is not smaller government, bringing in more taxes. That doesn't make much sense to glow about. I, I'm very confused. These are not Sandra's facts. But I, anything to own the libs, I guess. Oh, there's also another thing, not the Heritage Foundation, but there's also the fact that we have another wealth gap that exists in our country, a racial wealth gap. Because there is the fact that white families have been able to build up wealth longer than black families. Because considering the fact that black people were literally property until the Civil War, institutional discrimination was legal segregation until the 1960s, and systematic racism has existed throughout our history, I'm not sure how you could doubt that fact. When you actually look at the facts, practices like redlining have attempted to oppress minorities in the country by not allowing them to grow wealth through property and other assets. If you haven't heard about redlining, redlining was basically housing segregation. It was a part of housing segregation, keeping the whites in the white neighborhoods, keeping the poor blacks in the poor black neighborhoods. That was basically what they did. It's not legal anymore, but there were people, white families, who did not want to, I guess, live in the same neighborhoods as black families because racism, and they thought that their housing values would go way down. But that didn't allow black families, minority families, to raise wealth because they're just starting out after slavery and segregation. But no, you can't. No, you're not part of the party. So we wonder why there's this huge wealth gap, why black Americans on average are making a whole lot less than white Americans. And that's the reason, because of racism. And if you don't believe me, you need to look at these statistics because the racial wealth gap actually is not getting any better. In 1983, the median wealth for white Americans was $110,160, when it was only $7,323 for black Americans and $4,289 for Latino Americans. In 2016, for white Americans, that number ballooned to $146,984, but actually dropped to $3,557 for black Americans and rose just a little bit for Latino Americans to $6,591. In 2016, it was found that 71.9% of white families owned a home, a large wealth grower property owning a home, while only 44% of black families did. So the answer is not because... Black Americans are lazy because that's what people think, because that's just racist. The answer is systematic oppression and racism, which I don't really know how you could deny. Critical race theory is terrible. That's what that's what they think critical race theory is teaching that systematic racism has been in our country forever. Like, it's true. They just don't want to teach history. I don't know how you could deny that, considering Literal slavery in our country occurred. Systematic oppression and racism have unfairly punished minorities in this country and have not allowed generational wealth building. So we also have a racial wealth gap that is a huge problem in this country as well. But to conclude our deep dive into American history, the wealth and income inequality issues in the U.S., were much less of a problem back in the day, the 50s, the 60s, the early 70s. But now, we are facing some troubles. This is true. And now, 
that we've got our historical knowledge, now that it's all beefed up in our brains, all the facts, let's ask the question, what could happen if we keep the income and wealth inequality trends going the way they are? Well, we're actually already seeing some of the ramifications. The 2017 tax cuts, for example. That's because some of the biggest pushers of the tax cuts were higher earners who knew that they would be able to pay less taxes under the tax cuts. The top earners and those with the most wealth have used their money to back political candidates who will push for lower tax laws on the wealthy, who have mainly been Republican candidates. And this is, of course, possible because in 2010, the Supreme Court ruled in the Citizens United v. FEC case that individuals and corporations could contribute unlimited amounts of money to political causes, not specifically candidates, but causes, which have created super PACs and led to a rise in dark money in politics over the last 12 years. Spitting the truth. Loopholes have allowed many corporations and high-income individuals to pay little or no taxes. That's another ramification that we're already seeing. In 2007 and 2011, former Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos did not pay anything in federal income taxes in 2007 and 2011. He usually at least pays something in federal income taxes, but in those years, he didn't. And other billionaires have found ways to pay little to no income tax. And if the inequality trends continue that we're seeing, and those few at the top continue to increase their share of the nation's wealth, a select few are soon going to be able to buy and select their own political candidates, which we're already seeing right now. And furthermore, many are arguing that this trend is jeopardizing American democracy. We talk about American democracy a lot on this podcast because we know it is very fragile. And this is another thing that is throwing a wrench into this process. Author Stephen Brill argues in his 2018 book, Tailspin, the People and the Forces Behind America's 50-Year Fall and Those Fighting to Reverse It. He argues that the wealthy elites have allowed themselves to build a moat that excludes the working poor. He argues that this phenomenon has limited the rise of income and wealth for the majority at the bottom and led many Americans towards a sense of alienation, which can lead many towards populism, which increases the likelihood of candidates like Donnie Boy, who can bring bright promises, promise bright futures, and not mean a single word, like promising those in coal country that their jobs are coming back when everyone knows that coal jobs are not coming back. It's also no coincidence that Elon Musk, you know, is now backing away from Donnie Boy and is now backing Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSanta Claus for 2024. And we can talk about Ron DeSanta Claus and what he's doing in Florida because it's not good stuff. Seriously? The vast disparity, though, in wealth and income that we are seeing right now in this country is increasingly leading us towards our dystopian future that I have been talking about on this podcast for a while. With corporate monopolies rising and populist candidates surging, we are not exactly heading toward a future full of democracy in America. And that, to me, hopefully to you, too, is a little concerning. So what are some of the options that we have as a country that we can take to help lower the wealth gap? Well, you probably know the two most prominent politicians who have been talking about wealth inequality, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. They aren't just whining about it. They've actually come up with some solutions, and we have a results-proven template from 80 and 90 years ago to help guide us. How about that? How about that? The solutions are pretty simple. We have to, first off, elect politicians who are not in bed with the dark money and the rich billionaires who only want to lower their taxes. We need these politicians to remove the many loopholes that allow those at the top to pay so few in taxes, including that capital gains loophole, which erases inherited capital gains. Fully funding the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, would also go a long ways because if we gave the IRS the resources that it needs, 
that would allow it to go after those that sneak by on paying their taxes, we could allow full audits to be conducted of the top earners, which would help the U.S. get some much-needed tax revenue, and we can increase the top marginal tax rate from its current standing of 37%, that would also probably do wonders. But here's something that has actually been proposed in the United States Congress by Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. An ultra-millionaire tax act in March of last year. Senator, that sounds scary and horrible and it's going to affect me and they're going to raise my taxes. Well, not unless you're making over $50 million a year because that bill would impose a 2% annual tax on wealth over $50 million and 3% for wealth over $1 billion. That's a fact! According to economists at the University of California, Berkeley, that tax would only affect about 100,000 Americans, that's fewer than 1 in 1,000 families, and would raise at least $3 trillion over the next decade. And Warren says that the potential revenues could be put towards education and healthcare initiatives. Which we need, because healthcare is not exactly the best in this country, education is not exactly the best in this country, and the other side, as we learned in Texas, and from Donnie Boyce former education secretary Betsy DeVos, apparently we should abolish the education department, because that's what they want. And that is not a good thing, unless we want everyone to be stupid, which apparently is what the Republicans want. But what to actually invest in the government and reduce the national debt, we have to raise revenues, and that is only going to come from taxes, unless you want to make a donation to the government, which are taxes. Remember, though, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the potential suspension of gas taxes, which if you haven't listened to that podcast, it's episode 67. We talked about the economy, inflation, gas taxes. You need to go listen to that. But the thing is, that money from gas taxes goes towards infrastructure in a bunch of states. And without it, our already crumbling infrastructure would falter. The roads would have so many potholes. The bridges would start collapsing. It would not be good. And that's why I was like, um, maybe we shouldn't suspend the gas tax because also it wouldn't be that big of a savings anyway. Not very noticeable. So in order to get the benefits that you want from your country, because the government is the one paving the roads and building the bridges, you need to give them money. You can't lower taxes and raise spending, because that's what Reagan tried, that's what Donnie Boy tried, and it's only increasing the national debt, which apparently they're debt hawks when the Democrats are president. But when the Republicans are president, let's just raise spending, but we're going to cut taxes. That doesn't make sense. Nice try, buddy. In conclusion, though, Our wealth and income inequality is a major problem that we cannot continue on its current course. We have to solve this problem. The wealth taxes and other ideas, you're probably like, this is crazy. This is socialist. Oh my gosh, Sandra, you're a socialist. They have been labeled crazy socialist proposals. But, I mean, come up with another idea because they're literally the only ways to lower the massive wealth gap we have in our society, unless you want to slash government spending so we can get rid of Medicare, Medicaid, we can get rid of infrastructure spending, we can get rid of the military spending, we can get rid of all those things if you want. But that's what people actually want and what people actually need. It's why, I mean, I would think this, it's probably why a Republican-dominated nation would fail dramatically because they want all the benefits of big government but they don't want to pay for it. They want the taxes of a small government, and that doesn't work. We've got solutions, though, and we have an election coming up in November where we as a people, Americans, if you can vote, say we as a people can say that we need change. 64% of Americans said they support a wealth tax on the super rich, including majorities in both Parties That was found in a 2020 Reuters Ipsos poll, and in April 2021, Hill-Harris-X poll found that 56% would support a wealth tax. So, basically, to sum everything up, nobody's saying to abolish the wealthy. Nobody's saying have everyone equal, make everyone earn the same. Nobody's saying that. But the fact that people like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, 
Bill Gates, and others just have billions and billions that they can just throw around just for fun. Elon Musk can say, oh, I'll just throw a billion here to Twitter, you know, blah, blah, blah. That has become outrageous. And as I mentioned, even dangerous. That is not good. We have a problem and we have solutions. All we need to do is implement those solutions. If we could, please, let's hope. But that is a look at the wealth and income inequalities that are affecting our country. So there's your facts for this week. Xander's facts. Xander's facts. So there you have it. That is this week's Xander's facts flashback. Thank you all for listening. And remember, if you liked all the facts that were on this week's flashback, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, the Xander's facts flashback, rate and review the podcast, then go on all your socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Sanders Facts, that's Sander with a Z. And most importantly, remember to tell all your friends. Spread the facts. Sanders Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast, about Sanders Weekend Facts, about Sanders Facts on YouTube, because this Sanders Facts flashback is going to be on YouTube. The Sanders Facts link tree, which has all the Sanders Facts links that you need, and ZandersFacts.com, the Sanders Facts website, which has the Sanders Facts shop. Check it out. You can also go to the Sanders Facts shop on the Sanders Facts Instagram page, which you should check out as well. So there you go. That is this week's Sanders Facts Flashback. Remember, episode 82 comes out next week. Hopefully, we'll be able to provide a full recap of the midterm elections and our World Cup preview in soccer. That is coming up. That is less than two weeks when it starts from now. That's pretty crazy. Our preview is coming up next week. So check that out. But that is it. That is a wrap on the Sanders Facts Flashback. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see y'all with episode 82 next week.